this episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Donnelly Snipes. I would like to welcome you to today's presentation. We're continuing our series on human sexuality and cultural diversity, and today we're going to be really focusing on BDSM. If you have any questions throughout the presentation, please feel free to add those in the chat. The required trigger warning and cautions, the following presentation involves frank discussions of BDSM and sexuality. While not graphic, some of the content might be triggering for some people. This series is meant to provide an overview to help clinicians understand kink, BDSM, and polyamory, but is by no means all-inclusive. It's designed to increase awareness of common issues and help clinicians identify areas where they may need further training. We're going to review the benefits of BDSM and explore the prevalence. We'll learn about BDSM relationship structures a little bit today, and then we're going to talk about them a lot more on Thursday. We'll identify possible areas of physical and psychological injury that therapists need to be aware of, dispel some common BDSM myths, and identify danger signs of abuse in BDSM. So let's start with the benefits. People do it for a reason. There's got to be some kind of a benefit. So what are they? The research has found that BDSM practitioners report improved communication and increased intimacy. When people are engaged in a BDSM scene or in a BDSM dom-sub type relationship, there has to be a lot of communication about what each partner wants, what the hard limits are, what the soft limits are, which is a whole lot more talking than happens in a lot of vanilla relationships. Not to say that it doesn't happen in those, but in BDSM, you are typically pushing boundaries and pushing thresholds, your own. You're pushing your own boundaries in order to have a fuller experience, if you will. So if you're doing that with someone or when you're doing that with someone, you have to have implicit trust. And in order to have that trust, there has to be communication. BDSM, they found, actually encourages fidelity. Many people who embrace the lifestyle aren't interested in sabotaging the safety and trust that's imperative to the success of the BDSM relationship. They also, and, and remember with fidelity, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a monogamous one-on-one -on -one relationship. It can be a faithful, polyamorous relationship, but everybody in the relationship agrees that what's going on is okay. So you don't have people going out and sneaking around or cheating or, or doing those sorts of things as much. You do have it, but it does seem like it encourages fidelity. Another study found improved mental health. In a 2013 study from the Journal of Sexual Medicine, it was found that people who practiced BDSM scored better on certain mental health indicators than those who had, quote, vanilla sex. The BDSM-friendly participants were less neurotic, more open, more aware of and sensitive to rejection, more secure in their relationships, and had a better overall well-being. And obviously, we want to look at why this is. The less neurotic, the less anxious, emotionally... Um, Dis dysregulated makes sense because people who are involved in BDSM generally 
whether they call it mindfulness or not, do a whole lot of mindfulness work and mindfulness practice to stay in the moment and focus on what's going on. They tend to be more open. People who are involved in BDSM are typically people who embrace things that are not in that normal little box. They're open to new experiences. They're open to new things. They are more aware interpersonally of what's going on. In any scene between a dom and a sub, it is really important that the dom is exquisitely aware of what's going on with the sub as he or she pushes the sub to their to whatever limit or whatever outcome that they are are striving for so it encourages more awareness of self and awareness of others and like we talked about earlier it does encourage security in relationships because there is so much talking and the talking doesn't just happen at the beginning of the relationship when you do a yes no maybe list the talking happens before every scene the talking happens after every scene and we're going to talk about why that is so important when we go on i do want to mention and probably self-explanatory there are people in the kink and bdsm world that do not engage in it in a healthy way and what we're talking about here is really looking at people who engage in bdsm and it's empowering and liberating and it is enhancing to them and they engage in it in a in a healthy safe sane and consensual way other benefits of bdsm several studies have actually found that it reduces cortisol Cortisol is your stress hormone. When people go through a BDSM scene, especially one with intense play, they found that the levels of cortisol are actually reduced. My hypothesis would be that because of the situation, there was probably an influx of exogenous opioids and other things that counteracted the cortisol levels. I don't know, but they do find that it helps reduce cortisol levels. And it's not just for the dom, it's for the sub as well. Again, looking at the fact that BDSM is about is, is not about abuse and taking out aggressions. Actually, that is one of the worst things to do. In BDSM, it's about being in the scene. It is not about taking out aggressions. And people typically are advised and typically if they're doing it healthfully don't engage in these sorts of activities when they are angry they're engaging in this as a positive beneficial activity people experience an endorphin rush and an altered state of consciousness which has been likened to a runner's high they have increases in confidence and an increase in mindfulness during the bdsm scenes People often enter a flow state of mind, mindfulness, which is similar to the mindset athletes report when they're in the zone, if you will. We're going to talk a little bit more about the flow state later. There is no evidence that BDSM orientation is caused by childhood trauma or a history of abuse. BDSM is simply a sexual interest or subculture attractive to a minority minority and for most participants not a pathological symptom of past abuse or difficulty with normal sex and that's from the journal of sex medicine bdsm does not necessarily brackets are my own cause distress and dysfunction but sociologic sociocultural and political persecutions do let's talk about the sociocultural and political persecutions first if the culture is 
anti-BDSM, if they promote the stigma and stereotype that people that engage in BDSM are somehow unhealthy or abusive or damaged in some way, then it discourages and, and stigmatizes BDSM. That causes distress in people with BDSM. Those stigmatizing attitudes keep people who practice BDSM from being open with their caregivers about what's going on, whether the BDSM activities or relationship itself is causing the distress or it just happens to be there. I think we talked in another presentation, but I'll restate it. Sometimes practitioners of BDSM will not seek medical care when they need it because in the recent past they were engaging in significant impact play so they have bruises and they don't want to have to try to explain those bruises so they may if they have a cold or something they may not go to the doctor when they need to because they don't want to have the doctor see the bruises and then suddenly open this can of worms so to speak psychological characteristics of BDSM practitioners are generally favorable BDSM practitioners are less neurotic, more extroverted, more open to new experiences, more conscientious, less rejection sensitive, had higher subjective well-being, yet were less agreeable, which is kind of cool. You know, there's some really good things and you're thinking, why is less agreeable a good thing? People who engage in BDSM get very good at setting and maintaining boundaries and not being pushovers, if you will. They tend to be less agreeable when they've made up their mind. Now, that can go to the extreme and work against you, but it generally is a really good indication of self-efficacy, self-confidence, and healthy boundaries. Comparing the groups, if differences were observed, BDSM scores were generally more favorable for those with a dominant than a submissive role, with the least favorable roles for controls. So your, your vanilla controls, if you will, had the least favorable outcomes, followed by submissives, followed by dominance. Just kind of an interesting thing that we could talk about and hypothesize the reasons for that for a while. Many BDSM participants perceive sexual BDSM experiences as not only significantly different, but also better than mainstream vanilla sex. Now, this is a really important concept. BDSM participants construct sex as requiring a genital act, while framing sexual BDSM as creating sexual fulfillment, which doesn't necessarily require normative indicators of sexual experiences, such as orgasm. So in BDSM, the sexual experience and the sexual fulfillment may or may not involve what we typically refer to as actual sex. Sexual BDSM is centered on emotional and mental experiences, while sex is being centered on physical experiences. Really important division here, especially as we are starting to look at working with people who practice BDSM, understanding that when they, for example, go to a dungeon, they are not necessarily having sex with other people. They may be experiencing a scene that helps them feel empowered and push their limits, and it is in some way sexually gratifying. However, they may not be having sex. Sexual BDSM experiences facilitate deeper interpersonal connections than those available in sex. 
So how many people actually engage in this? It was found in, in a, a few studies, and, and those are in your class, 46.8% of the total sample had ever performed at least one BDSM-related activity, and at least an additional 22% had had fantasies about it. So 68%, almost 70% of people had either engaged in BDSM or had fantasies about it. Now, remember, BDSM runs the gamut. B stands for bondage. There's a lot of people who have been tied up, who have had handcuffs put on them, those sorts of things. It doesn't have to be intricate knots. It doesn't have to be suspension things. It can be as simple as being tied up. Spankings, those are not uncommon in even in the vanilla world. So those are activities that do fall in the BDSM umbrella, if you will. But B stands for bondage. Um, D stands for dominance or discipline. They can mean one and the same. They can mean different things. S stands for submission or sadomasochism. And M stands for masochism. So these are the things that we're looking at. Any of these activities that fall within that umbrella. 12.5% of the total population indicated performing at least one BDSM-related activity on a regular basis. There are millions of people out there practicing BDSM. It's important that we're aware of it. BDSM, well, I'll get to that in a minute. BDSM and fetish interests were significantly higher in men than women, but the older group of people surveyed between 48 and 65 years old, had significantly lower BDSM scores compared with their younger peers, which means that the younger people that we're seeing now may be more engaged in BDSM, partly because of culture, being more open to it now that Fifty Shades has come out and all that kind of stuff. Again, Fifty Shades is probably the worst example of BDSM. It was not consensual. It was very manipulative in many sorts of ways. Of participants with BDSM interest, 61% became aware of it before 25 years of age. Between 50 and 20% of people in some studies in the U.S. report regularly engaging in BDSM. Next time you go to, to Walmart, look around and think, you know, one out of every five of these people may engage in some sort of BDSM practice. Just let that sink in for a second at how likely it is that clients that you're working with are engaging in these practices. Getting started with BDSM means understanding what it means. People involved in BDSM stress the importance of everything being consensual. So there will be much negotiation at the start about things people do and do not enjoy and the way in which the relationship will be structured. Whether the dom sub is 24-7 or it's just in the bedroom or it's just for certain scenes, some people who practice BDSM don't do it all the time. It may be a every other Thursday thing and the rest of the time is vanilla. It just really depends on the person. BDSM communities and websites are a great place to look for more information from those who have been involved in the kinds of practices and relationships that people are interested in. Also, local fetish fairs and kink events often include demonstrations and workshops for people who are interested in BDSM but realize that certain BDSM practices can actually cause physical and or psychological harm. So it's 
you need training. Let's talk a little bit about relationship structure really quick. Typically, in a BDSM relationship, you have a dominant and you have a submissive. BDSM, by its very nature, involves some sort of power exchange. If you have bondage, somebody's getting tied up and somebody's doing the tying. If you have sadomasochism, you have somebody inflicting pain and somebody receiving pain. If you have uh, dominance and discipline, then you have somebody doing the disciplining and somebody receiving the discipline. Those structures vary by different, by each person. It is, however, important to remember that it is a power exchange. Additionally, people can identify as dominant, submissive, or switch. We've been talking about dominant and submissive. Switch means it's someone who likes playing both roles. Some days they feel like being the dominant, and other days they feel like being the switch. That's okay. That's perfectly normal. It's something that needs to be negotiated in the relationship. Some people are doms all the time, so being in a relationship with a switch might not be as comfortable. But switching actually tends to be very common among people in the lifestyle. In a dom-sub relationship, people may, people may include power play in their sex life and perhaps in other aspects of their relationship. For the most people, being in a dom-sub relationship will be something that they do only for some of the time, but others may have lifestyle or 24-7 arrangements. Another um, arrangement that, that people can have is their DS may be in the bedroom, but occasionally they go away for a weekend and there's a longer exchange of power. We'll discuss more of this in the next episode on dom-sub and FLR relationships. So frame and flow, I told you we would get back to it. Scenes and frame, this is when you are engaged in a BDSM activity. And it's how people distinguish their pretend play from actual violence or domination. If you're in a scene, for example, a, an abduction scene, then certain things are going to happen within that scene. But there is a very clear beginning and a very clear end to that scene. This frame hinges on the BDSM credo, safe, sane, and consensual. Both partners, before they go into the scene, know what's going to happen. Well, not necessarily what's going to happen, but they know what the beginning and ending are going to look like, and there's no question when it stops. So the, well, there's no question when it stops. Just like when you go to a play. You go, you're very clear when scene one, scene two, scene three. It's very clear when it begins and ends. It's very clear after the play, the actors come out on stage and they are no longer in those roles. They are back to being themselves, the actors, not whatever roles they were playing. BDSM is the same thing. Flow is defined as a completely focused motivation and immersion and an awareness in an act which includes intense and focused concentration on the present moment. Staying focused. Merging of action and awareness. What you're doing, you're aware of while you're doing it. A loss of reflective self-consciousness. You're not thinking, oh, do I look fat or is my hair a mess or something. You are focused in the moment and on what's going on. There's a sense of personal control or agency over the situation. This is important, even for subs. And subs, people think 
they tend to be the ones that have no power. Actually, they have all the power, if you will, because they have the ability to call off the scene at any point in time. They have already stated what their hard and soft limits are. They have agreed to what's going to happen in this scene. However, if it's not going well, they do have the ability to just call it off. They are expecting the dom to perform in a certain way. There are clear goals in whatever is going on, and they experience the activity as intrinsically rewarding. Think about a basketball player who is playing in the final four. That basketball player, when he's on the court, is going to have all of these things. He's not going to be aware of the 50,000 people in the stands. He's not going to be, you know, thinking so much about every single thing that he does. He's going to be dribbling the ball and doing what he needs to do. He has a sense of personal control over the situation. He knows how to do this. He's practiced these skills. The goal is to win, to make baskets. And he experiences the activity as intrinsically rewarding. The same thing can be said in BDSM. Going through this scene, people become very immersed in what's going on. And there is, I did include a PDF of the flow scale in your class, just so you could take a look at it, because it was interesting how it did parallel from intense sports activity to BDSM. Compared to other practices, BDSM has the risk of being much more physically or psychologically dam damaging when done incorrectly. And that is where I really want to focus, is if it's done correctly, then people emerge stronger and all those other things that we talked about. If it's done incorrectly, it can be extraordinarily damaging. An abusive dom, top, master, whatever you want to call them, those are the typical three, or mistress, uh, those, those are the four terms that are typically used for the person with power, or one who disregards or pushes limits without consent. Any dom who pushes limits without consent is being abusive and can be harming the submissive any sub bottom or slave or little who is engaging in the behaviors or lifestyle out of fears of abandonment can be damaged by engaging in these activities if they feel forced to do it if they feel coerced because they're afraid that their partner will leave a practitioner who has a history of sexual physical or emotional abuse who becomes re-triggered during the scene can experience trauma as a result of being re-victimized if they are recapitulating that scene and they feel like they're being victimized all over again. Or it can become abusive if the person is re-triggered and suddenly they decide that, okay, this is going to go different this time and all of that anger that they have been holding on to, they take out on their partner. In some cases, people, well, like we talked about in, in earlier classes, the expectation is that people who are engaging in kink and BDSM have trauma histories because the expectation is that people have trauma histories. Can BDSM, can some of these activities help people work through trauma activities or trauma? Yes. I mean, I'd be lying if I said I didn't know that it had ever happened. Yes, some people do, but it's in a controlled environment where people maybe replay the scene and feel the victim slash sub in the scene feels more empowered 
working through it. It's not something I would recommend as a way to work through trauma, but do people sometimes do it? Yes. The important thing is they know why they're doing it and what the expected outcome is. If someone becomes triggered in a scene, it's important to call the scene right then and then process what's going on. Sometimes people won't even realize that what they're getting ready to do in a scene will be triggering and they get in there and it's like, oh crap, that's okay. That's the wonderful thing about BDSM. It's safe, sane, and consensual. As soon as that person feels triggered and wants to, wants to get out, then the scene is off. It is important, and this is so important in so many, um, especially new doms, but a lot of doms don't do a good job of paying attention to subdrop. And this can be one of the most damaging things in a BDSM relationship if the dom does not give adequate attention to it. Regardless of trauma history, BDSM activities involve voluntarily pushing or allowing personal boundaries to be pushed. If you go to see a personal trainer, do you expect them to just say, ah, do however many you feel like? Or do you expect them to help you push your boundaries? You know, we engage in activities that help us push our boundaries and get stronger and grow every day. BDSM doesn't have to be any different. It is important to recognize, though, that when your boundaries are pushed, it can result in some emotional turmoil. During the scene, the person may be in the flow or what we call subspace, which is a, that place where they are not being self-reflective. They are just in the moment right then. They're not being self-conscious. And then afterwards, sometimes subs will look back and even doms to a certain extent will look back and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. Because after the scene is when they are reflecting and be, they have the ability to be more self-conscious. After the scene, it's not uncommon for the practitioner, particularly the sub, to feel very vulnerable and exposed. Subdrop refers to the sadness a submissive partner may feel, not always, but may feel, once endorphins crash and adrenaline floods their body after a powerful scene. Now, this can be powerful because of pain or powerful emotionally in some way for them. When subdrop happens, the submissive may experience feelings of depression, rejection, anxiety, fear, and even guilt. Those things need to be processed. Does it mean that things went bad in the scene? Not necessarily. Maybe there was something that they wanted to play out in the scene that was culturally unsanctioned, if you will, and in retrospect, they feel guilty about engaging it or enjoying it. They may need to process that, and that's okay. Being aware of one's feelings and during the time that people are processing subdrop is when they start to become aware of their reactions and much more in tune with their multi-level reactions because we don't just have one feeling. We have four or five feelings at once. The endorphins and other hormones released during play leave the person's body in such a way that it takes time to rebuild the balance in their system. Just like an athlete after they play that final four game, I mean, they were hyped up. They're exhausted afterwards. They are just worn down. Now, they may not be depressed. There are some parallels that we can't quite draw. However, it does take time for the body to rebalance because it was flooded with dopamine and all kinds of other stuff, almost like a, a drug high. 
Physical aspects of subdrop, fatigue, aches and pains, and recovery from marks or injuries. The person may feel like they have a hangover or partied too hard the night before. They just, whoa, feel like they got hit by a truck. Emotional aspects of subdrop include sadness, which if not cared for, could go into depression from just one play session. It doesn't take multiple play sessions. One really intense event could alter the neurochemicals enough to create feelings of sadness, and then if that those feelings of sadness are not attended to and the pe- person experiences rejection or feels like they're experiencing rejection, it can lead to clinical depression. The person can feel lost and depressed for hours or even days. Sometimes they just want to sleep it off. People with a history of depression or bipolar disorder need to be extra aware of the impact of these hormone alterations. It can be a somewhat scary experience, especially if it follows on the heels of what may have been an especially powerful and positive BDSM scene. They were on top of the world, and all of a sudden, they're crashing. Aftercare is essential in order to make sure that everyone involved in the scene feels safe and cared for after playtime is over. And in BDSM, a lot of times these scenes or activities are called playtime. And that, again, helps differentiate it from the rest of the time. Aftercare means communicating and taking care of one another after the scene to ensure that all parties involved are 100% comfortable with what went down. What each person needs for aftercare is very personal. Some people need some space. Some people need snuggles. It just depends on the person. Doms do need to remember to ask the sub if they're going to need a specific type of aftercare before the scene. That way they're aware of what may or may not need to happen. And subs need to make sure they don't expect doms to be mind readers. This is one of those things that I found ironic because so much of BDSM is about communication and very intricate communication. Yet when it comes to aftercare, many doms and subs don't talk about it nearly enough and this is the one of the areas that really can lead a person to feel diminished and depressed after a bdsm scene and maybe have a lot of regret sometimes for one reason or another a top or a dom may not be able to commit time to aftercare and a bottom or a sub may crave extensive time even up to several hours after an intensive scene Best practices indicate it's important that the dom spend the first 5 to 15 minutes doing some form of aftercare so that an immediate feeling of abandonment does not set in. So getting up or when the scene's over, just leaving to go take a shower, not cool. It's important that the dom spend time with the sub. And there needs to be, if the person needs extensive aftercare, that pre-negotiated babysitter is set up before the scene. The babysitter is an agreed-upon person trusted by both parties to provide additional aftercare for the bottom, or sub, once the dom is required to leave. A lot more information out there on aftercare and different aftercare kits that people can make. One suggestion for subs is to figure out what they need for aftercare and make their own aftercare kit. Subdrop, unfortunately, can occur occur more frequently in committed relationships because both parts 
of the relationship may start to get lazy and not communicate or we've done this before so there's no need for me to worry about you having sub drop because been there done that already processed it that's not true every time they go through a scene there's the risk of sub drop additionally in committed relationships more edges are pushed as you have been with somebody for longer you know you're pushing that pushing that line and once you cross that line it's like okay well then you push the next line and then you push the next line so you're starting to get to the outer bounds of comfort in committed in long-term committed relationships the question is does the dom not experience sub drop typically no because the pain and i don't want to anxiety is not the right word excitement from turning over all of your power is often what contributes to sub drop doms do need to have time to get back in their vanilla world headspace if you will however the experience of the endorphin switches tend to be much more prominent for subs myths the dominant partner is the one in control no bdsm usually considered consists of a dominant or a top partner and a submissive or a bottom although the dominant would appear to be the one running the show it's actually the doms that perform to please their subs hence subs are often nicknamed bossy bottoms this is a crucial thing for us to kind of wrap our heads around a person who is dominant or submissive in real life will prefer a similar role in bdsm that's false they may however it's not unusual for people who are type a alpha personalities at work and in the public world to be submissive in their private relationships it's also important to remember that it's not always about sex another myth is that the dom has all the power we kind of talked about this a minute ago while in the scene the dom is doing things to or requiring things of the sub that the sub wants and that and the dom does also want to do so they've negotiated this and the sub may say i want to be humiliated and the dom may say i want to humiliate you so well score we're both in agreement but it is something that is pre agreed upon before going into the scene and the goal is the mutual satisfaction of both parties we don't want to look towards sexual sadism where one partner is getting gratification at the expense of the other partner that's not bdsm that is not okay either participant can terminate or break the scene at any time and each participant has been well versed on the hard and soft limits of the other i'll say it again disregarding these limits or pushing limits not even disregarding them but just nudging a little bit without prior discussion is totally unacceptable and that's a violation of trust another myth uh, you decide current feminist viewpoints on bdsm practices continue to be controversial and at odds with one another feminists who view bdsm as contradictory to feminism also often believe that women who engage in bdsm practices specifically submission have been led by sexist power struggle structures to believe that they enjoy these acts the feminist viewpoint argues that the individuals who enjoy playing a submissive role in the bedroom only enjoy it because they've been led to believe that it is what is expected of them and they should enjoy it 
If these individuals were able to explore their sexual desires without the influence of a sexist power structure, they would come to very different conclusions about what they enjoy. Other feminists say BDSM is the greatest thing in the world because a woman is able to identify what she likes and take charge of her own sexuality and be a dom if she wants to or be a sub if she wants to and still maintain her control. Again, it's up to you to decide on whether you think that's a myth or a fact. Myths, it's abusive. BDSM is not in, it, in itself abusive. Consent and an in-depth discussion of boundaries and physical and psychological safety are the absolute hallmarks. Any experience of pain or humiliation by the sub has been pre-negotiated and is a positive or, or erotic experience for the sub. In the scene in the dynamic of the relationship as it has been pre-negotiated and set up, what is happening is okay. And the sub always retains control to terminate it at any point in time. Another myth is that BDSM is always about sex. And that's probably the least of what it's about. It's about sensation, pushing personal boundaries, exploring power dynamics, including sub submission, Submission, acceptance, and surrender, which can be really hard for some people. And for some people, they can find it extraordinarily liberating. Best practices in BDSM, start low and go slow. The analogy I found online is one of a mountain climber who decides to brave the deadly faces of Mount Everest. And he comes through alive, but it was very dangerous and very rewarding. BDSM, some of the practice are very practices are very dangerous and for some can be very rewarding. However, you wouldn't tell a novice to go out and say, well, why don't you just start out climbing Mount Everest? That wouldn't make any sense. In BDSM, it's the same thing. We want people to start with small steps and see how it feels and then become more educated and learn in order to do it safely. While they're able to make informed choices about their consent with this activity, newer folks have too much to learn to really have much insight into wisely taking big risks. Therefore, it's considered best practices to tell a beginner to stick to short scenes and small steps. I wanted to touch briefly on bondage because some people aren't really sure why others would do it. And it is one of the more common BDSM activities that people undertake. The reasons for doing it can include they like to feel restrained. They like to have the onus taken off of them to do anything because they can't. They're helpless. They may, may find it sensual. Remember, bondage is not just about tying somebody to a bedpost. It can be done in a very artistic fashion, which some people find very sensual. It can build trust and connection between people. If you're going to let somebody completely tie you up, you got to trust them. So it does increase communication and connection. It can be exciting for some people to feel that sense of being helpless. Maybe some, somebody does it because they just want to experiment or try something new. It can be as part of a dominant submission role. It can be something that is purely artistic or part of role-playing, such as a, a kidnap scene or something. The caveats with bondage, though, this is one of those that can get dangerous really, really stinking fast. Asphyxiation, 
autoerotic asphyxiation, I always have trouble saying that word, uh, can happen if somebody binds themselves too much and the knots don't let go and they end up actually cutting off uh, their circulation and their oxygen and killing themselves. If you're working with a partner, getting the ropes too tight, people can't breathe. That's not okay. It can damage nerves and circulation. You don't want to cut off blood flow to any particular area of the body for too long. And the emotional responses can be different. If somebody starts having an intense emotional response, then it needs to be terminated. A lot of people are very concerned about abuse when, when it comes to BDSM because in the scenes, it can look abusive. So how do we decide whether something is intimate partner violence or consensual BDSM? First question, is it consensual? Are both partners doing it willingly and with fervor? They both want to be there. In a violent relationship, one partner may be doing it willingly and the other partner is just along for the, lot, along for the ride and afraid of abandonment or afraid of punishment or afraid that the other partner will kill the kids or there's fear managing that other partner. In BDSM, both partners are excited and empowered. Both parties have power and control. It doesn't cause psychological harm to any of the parties that are involved. So they feel empowered afterwards. Subdrop is temporary, and if it's handled well, then it's good. If it continues to produce negative effects and trigger major depressive episodes, then you need to look at whether it's a healthy thing to do. However, it's not abuse if it's within that consensual framework and the person is doing it willingly and wantingly. Does that mean that it's a good idea? No, that could be a whole treatment plan issue. Abuse often makes the victim feel responsible for the abuse, yet powerless to change it. In these relationships, the sub may feel responsible for what happens because they help direct the scene. However, they are very empowered to change the situation or to stop the situation if it starts getting out of hand. Our behaviors and interactions characterized by respect, and that is, is so important, that respect has to be between both people. Neither one is outside of the scene being derogatory towards the other. Some danger signs to look for. Participants who are subtly or not so subtly pushed to perform acts that they don't really like and are discouraged from declining or using a safe word and they're told that this is because it's part of their BDSM growth or training. That's not okay. That's abuse. The person is not openly and willingly and consensually saying, yeah, I want to do that. It's a, well, if I have to, that's not okay. It's a, we want a resounding yes. Abusive bottoms, remember subs can be abusive, may suggest that the doms are not good doms if they don't like certain practices or don't feel comfortable taking specific activities to a certain level. Abusive doms may do the same thing. Like we talked about in kink, different strokes for different folks, and not everybody is going to have the same kinks, interests, or ideas about what they want to have happen. So there needs to be a compromise before engaging in a scene. And if tops and bottoms 
or doms and subs are completely on different pages, it may be a bad fit for a DS relationship. A dangerous dom is more likely to take the sub to the edge prematurely to prove something about themselves. So a dangerous dom may get into a scene and their sub has said, this is a hard limit. I'm, I, I'm not okay going there. And the dom pushes them to that limit the first time they play in order to prove that they are powerful in some way. That's not okay. That's about the dom. That's not about mutual satisfaction. That's about the dom proving, proving something. Once the dom has the sub to that edge, they may play out a set of acts that have worked for them before and not be fully present to the sub's experience. So they may push the sub to the edge of what they're comfortable doing and then the dom takes on their own little fantasy and they're oblivious to what's going on with the sub and whether the sub's okay. In a healthy relationship, the dom can take the sub to that edge in the appropriate time when there's appropriate trust and it's going to be a healthy, nourishing thing, remains aware of the sub's experience the whole time, and whether it's gone well or whether the sub has decided this isn't a place I ever want to go again, they both feel respected, loved, and cared for. That's essential to, and again, that comes out during the aftercare. And if there is no aftercare, there's no way to figure out if everybody feels respected, loved, and cared for. Another danger sign is the dom commenting about the sub within a circle of other doms or other people and making that comments that are degrading and not in the consensual ways of degradation that have been carefully negotiated. Some people that are engaging in lifestyle dom-sub relationships are okay with the degradation and humiliation in front of others. But that would be in front of certain others, not, not at work, in front of the vanilla population, as, as they're called, um, but in some other situations. Participants, especially doms that withdraw or stonewall when things don't go their way and say they just need space, are also very dangerous because they are basically training the sub to never raise hard issues because they're rewarded with closeness when they don't raise anything and abandoned when they do. And this can actually go either way. A sub can also withdraw affections from the dom when they're not getting their own way. And this can be very devastating to a dom who has also been vulnerable in this relationship. And if a dom or a sub engages in constant loyalty testing, that's a danger sign. We want these relationships to be healthy, communicative, trusting. So if there's loyalty testing, there's probably some issues with trust there that indicates that there may be a problem. Two contraindications in the practice of BDSM. Anyone diagnosed with severe and pers persistent mental illness, especially developmental, neurocognitive, autism, spectrum disorder type stuff, personality disorders, active psychotic disorders, or an active addiction that significantly and consistently impair their judgment shouldn't practice BDSM until they are able to make effective informed consent. Even after they, if they get to the point where they're stable and they're able to make effective informed consent, long-term power exchanges should be avoided 
in order to prevent harm. BDSM co covers a wide range of activities, almost all involving some level of power exchange. BDSM practitioners have been found to be at least as well as just at least as well adjusted as sexually normative cultural people. And as many as 20 to 50% of people have engaged in some type of BDSM behavior, especially bondage and spanking. BDSM, as we said, is not something that people just jump into. They need to become informed, as, and I've alluded to Fifty Shades of Grey multiple times. Um, Christian had a lot of things around his dungeon, but it wasn't clear that he really knew how to use them effectively. He was regularly pushing um, his partner to engage in things that she wasn't okay with, but she was doing to try to please him, to try to make him happy with her. That's not what BDSM is about. In BDSM, there's much negotiation and learning to prevent psychological and physical harm, and what will be psychologically damaging to one person may not be to another, which is why there has to be that communication. Partners need to understand each other's traumas, hang-ups, past, and what's bothering them in the present in order to be able to support one another in a BDSM scene. The BDSM motto is safe, sane, and consensual. Safe meaning make sure you know what you're doing and you're not going to cause permanent damage to the other person. Sane means knowing what you're doing, being willing to make an informed consent to participate in this activity, and protecting one another's mental health. And then consensual means voluntary consent on both parts. Another question, though we as mental health providers can advise clients with personality disorders to hold off, we can't stop them. What conversations are helpful to help clients with personality disor disorders monitor the risk of harm? The same conversations we have with all of our clients because we can't stop them. Educate them, and it is so important to use that um, model that we talked about last week to provide counseling. First, you want to help people explore what they're interested in and why they're interested in in it and then provide limited information so they can start learning about it a little bit more and then talk with them about what the potential consequences and ramifications are if they are legal adults who are you know have the capacity to consent then obviously we can't stop them from doing it but we do want to make sure that they have the information they need to make a fully informed decision and in my opinion somebody with a history of any sort of stuff which is pretty much everybody needs to really look at their stuff in relation to these activities and ponder how those things might be triggered or might affect their experience in the BDSM scenes to make sure it's somewhere they want to go and to monitor the risk of harm really I would say doing something that in, involves a regular journal or status check where they can monitor relapse warning signs for signs of unhelpful or unhealthy behaviors or moods coming out and they can identify if the scenes are triggering those or not are there any other questions oh, I'm sorry I missed one from Rebecca 
have there been any BDSM studies done on people who go on in reality to actually strangle, rape, and murder people if they um, are engaged in BDSM behaviors beforehand? The studies have almost exclusively uh, indicated that people who partake in BDSM are much more psychologically healthy than you know even your average population bdsm behaviors if you're doing it safe sane and consensual you're not going to get excited you're not going to get the release from doing it against somebody's will um, there's generally well there is escalation if you will the things that people are willing and wanting to engage in do tend to get more intense as they're in the lifestyle longer but it's always with another consensual partner who wants, well, obviously wants to do it if, if they're consenting, and both people experience a mutual benefit from it. That's what excites the person who's involved in BDSM, is both people getting just a mutually almost spiritual experience from the activity, not necessarily the activity itself. Does this apply in the same way to paid transactions as well? I don't think anybody's ever really looked at prostitutes and their experiences for paid doms. There are professional doms out there. Yes, there is, you know, very safe, sane, and consensual, and very contract-oriented. Great questions. All righty, everybody. Um, we're about out of time. If you have any more questions, please let me know. Otherwise, your quiz will be available in just a minute, and... I will see you on Thursday, and we'll continue talking about dom-sub relationship structures. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.